Well, good morning, Brian. If you guys have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we are continuing our trek through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it is such a joy to be here with you. Uh, I absolutely love the work that uh, Jacob and Lindsay are doing. In fact, our 17-year-old uh, our son uh, is a part of the student ministry here at Briar Creek. And man, he's just been incredibly poured into. So even from a just a very self-centered, selfish perspective, I affirm their ministry. Uh, it has been it has been tremendous. Plus, we know them to be godly people because they're Atlanta Braves fans. <laughs> Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Also great seeing Jules up there on the on the base. I love it. I first heard about Jules skills. I was preaching at a college conference uh, in in Texas uh, and um, a couple of the people came up to me. They knew Jules when she was a part of the college ministry there. And you're like, they're like, you know, she she's bad on that base, right? So I was like, ah, I didn't know that. And so I walk in, and man, what a what an absolute absolute blessing. Any men deeply encouraged by the men's conference this weekend? Anybody? What a rich, what a rich, wonderful time. I'm excited to share the word of God with you. First Corinthians chapter 13. Pick me up in verse one. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says these words, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a, make note of this phrase, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away not some of what I have, not most of what I have, but I give away all I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing's an interesting word in the Greek. It, uh, man, it's a technical term that actually means nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It isn't evil. Someone say, ouch, or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I, as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Sound people, it feels like I'm cutting in and out. I'll just plow through, no big deal. If I'm cutting in and out to you guys, just cut me off mid-sermon, hand me a handheld mic. You won't disturb me. All right, here we go. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you for your We thank you for the power of it, Lord God. We thank you. That your word is living and active, as the writer of Hebrews says. God, your word 
will not return void. It's amazing to me, Lord God, that you choose to use me with all of my faults and blemishes. This week, as I was studying this passage, it felt like I was taken to the woodshed. It's pierced my own heart. We look at this perfect standard of love, and as imperfect people, we all fall short. So there's no condemnation in this place today. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that fills in all the gaps. Nevertheless, you call me to preach your perfect standard, and I don't shy away from that. So would you minister comfort, help, conviction, encouragement, grace to all of us hypocrites? Do it, Father God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Stories told of the time in which a husband and wife, man, they were going through a, one of those uh, turbulent seasons in marriage in which it just felt like they were arguing all the time. They were at each other's throats. They were nitpicking at each other. And uh, finally, in the middle of uh, one, we won't call it an argument, we'll call it a marital realignment session, um, <laughs> the wife just, just cut the husband off and says, look, this is just ridiculous. We've been arguing, fussing, and fighting all the time. Uh, why don't we do this? She suggested that they both take out a sheet of paper, a sheet of notebook paper, and uh, uh, grab a couple of pencils. Why don't we just write down on this sheet all of the grievances that we have with each other? So that's what they decided to do. They both sat down, and they just started to write their list of grievances that they had with each other. They would write a little bit, look at each other, and who were, who were still writing, and write some more, and finally the wife finished. She had filled up the front side, and much to her disgust, the husband was still writing and writing and writing. In fact, this joker had actually turned the paper over and had the audacity to continue writing on the back side of that sheet of paper. She's, she's disgusted. She's disappointed. She's now really upset. Tears are welling up in her eyes, streaming down her cheeks. Finally, he gets finished uh, filling up both sides of the paper, they then uh, exchanged those pieces of paper with each other. And when the wife received her husband's paper, again filled up on both front and back, she was immediately convicted, cut to the quick. For all the husband had done was written, I love you, 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 over and over and over again. She immediately stood up, embraced him, and the road to reconciliation began. It only began when the husband decided to administer to her the supremacy of love. Love is the path forward into true, authentic Christian community and reconciliation. It was the great Martin Luther King Jr. who once said these words, hate can never drive out hate, only love can do that. But what exactly is love? Have you ever Googled love? Have you ever just Googled that? Uh, I want to warn you, you Google love and less than a second later, over 5 billion results come back at you. I mean, love is like one of those things, it's, I, I kind of say, it's like a Cheeto. Define for me what a Cheeto is. I'll wait. We can't define it but we know it when we see it. That's love. Man, I can't believe I just did that. That was not in the manuscript. Seemed to work well. We'll try it again the second service. 
It's one of those things, you, you know it when you see it, you can describe it. But exactly what is it? If you were to ask the Greeks in Paul's day, uh, tell us about love, they wouldn't respond with five billion plus results. They'd give three or four key Greek words. Uh, to the Greeks, one idea of love is the Greek word eros, E-R-O-S, from which we get such English words as erotic from. Uh, yes, the idea of eros does con contain the idea of, um, of sex, but to the Greek, eros was a lot more. In fact, the, the word which most aptly defines eros isn't sex, it's what we would call intoxication. It's just this, we would call it being in love with. As my kids would say, it's a person who has all the feels. Eros is kind of what happens when you first meet that person and you've had a couple of, of dates. I'll never forget, Corey and I started dating one another, man, in those early stages of the relationship, man. I'd call her from my landline uh, in, in my home there in, uh, in, in, in Paramount, California. She was living in North Hollywood, man, in the early stages of Eros. She turned this introvert into an extrovert. We were on the phone all the time. Sometimes, man, we'd fall asleep on the phone and, and we'd go, no, you hang up. No, no, you hang up. That's Eros. Eros is long walks on the each together. Eros is, uh, is that woman who's, who's just met that man. They've had a couple of dates, and she's doodling um, her first name and, and his last name just to kind of get a feel for what it is. That's Eros. I want you to understand not one time in this great love passage with all of the mentions of the term love does Paul use the term Eros. And the reason for that is that while Eros is wonderful at starting a relationship, it is horrible when it comes to sustaining, I got it, a started. There it is, let there be sound. But it cannot actually sustain the relationship. Please notice in our text, none of the descriptions of love is a feeling. If you only showed love when you felt like it, there would be many, many days when people did not feel loved by you. Another Greek word for love is a, it's the word phileo. It's the idea of friendship. It's from that word we get such words as Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I don't know if you've ever been to Philadelphia. Mm, ask, ask Ben Simmons. How, how friendly Philadelphia is. The idea of, of phileo, it's really the idea of friendship. The idea of friendship is a relationship that starts on a, on a note of mutuality. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Four Loves. If you want to take a deeper dive into what we're talking about, I really recommend that book, The Four Loves. Uh, uh, when he talks about phileo, the idea of friendship, C.S. Lewis says, all friendship begins on a note of, oh, you too. There's commonality. There's there's mutuality. But please notice in all of these descriptions of love, not one time does Paul use phileo. Because in the body of Christ, if you only wait to show love to people you like or to people you feel a mutual connection to, there'll be plenty of people who won't feel loved by you. Paul doesn't use eros. He doesn't use phileo. Instead, he, he uses agape. 
What is agape? If you get nothing else I say, I want you to get this little definition for agape. Look at it with me. Agape love, drink it in slowly, is acting for the well-being of others regardless of how they respond to me. Agape love is acting for the well-being of others regardless of how they respond to me. This is really, really important. Agape love is commitment. It's not just a feeling. At times, does it contain feelings? Sure. At times, does it feel a sense of mutuality? Sure. But at the end of the day, agape love says, I am so ruthlessly committed to you and to your growth, development, and well-being that at times I will even put myself in harm's way so that you might experience all that God has for you. It's agape love. It's exactly what it means. Agape love is... Is that parent holding that child's hand, crossing the busy intersection? I'll never forget this. My youngest son, Jade, man, so many times he didn't want to hold my hand when he was a little boy, and we'd be crossing some street when we lived in in New York, and he'd be trying to, to, to let go of me, screaming and hollering, and I would just grip him even tighter. Why? Because at the end of the day, I was concerned for his well-being. I wasn't concerned about whether or not you liked me in that moment. Agape love at the end of the day says, man, I'm, I'm willing to have a hard conversation with you because at the end of the day, I'm more committed to your growth and development than to how you may or may not like me. I'm willing to put my relationship on the line because you matter more. Agape love is what happens often when we meet uh, here at the Summit Church on Sundays. It's, uh, it's what we introverts do. We show agape love all the time when Pastor J.D. Talk tells us to huddle up in small groups with strangers and exchange prayer requests. Introverts, that's agape love. Can I get an amen in the house today? Agape love is Jesus Christ walking to Via Dolorosa, being nailed to a cross, dying for the sins of the world knowing that so many people would reject him and despise him as a man of sorrows. That, my friends, is what it means to really walk in agape love. The only Greek word that Paul uses in our text for love ain't eros. It's not phileo. It's agape. What is agape love? One more time, it is acting for the well-being of others regardless of how they respond to me. And Paul argues it is agape love, which is the distinctive of what it means to be a Christian. We see this right away in verse 1. Look at it with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, what is he saying there? I don't think he's so much speaking of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I think what he's saying when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's saying, you can know all the languages in heaven And on earth, but if you have not love, he says, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, oftentimes we take that to mean as as something that gets on someone's nerves. I want to submit to you uh, that that's a possible interpretation. I think there's one better. Back then, if you were to go to to a Greek pagan temple, as soon as you'd walk in, one of the first things you'd notice is the blaring sounds of trumpets and cymbals and gongs over and over again. It was was the distinctive of pagan Greek worship. What is Paul saying? If you don't walk in love, we're not distinguished from how non-Christians act. 
What distinguishes us is love. And I think I'm on good biblical grounds. In John chapter 13, Jesus says these words. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, not by the arguments you have on Facebook. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, not by the amount of theology that you know. By this will all men know that you're, that you, that you're my disciples, not by your doctrinal statements. But by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Galatians chapter 5, I talked the other week about, about life in the Spirit. And as Paul is writing out the fruit of the Spirit, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Please notice that the leadoff batter to the list is love. Now in our text, he ends by saying three great Christian virtues. King James Version says it this way, now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest, the greatest, the greatest of these is love. One scholar says that love is the MVP of all Christian virtues. That an unloving Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care what your consecutive quiet time streak may be. I don't care how much theology you know or how long you've been going to the church. If you do not have love, Paul says you are nothing. Now, why is this important? A recent Gallup poll shows us, showed us that for the first time in the history of the Gallup poll, going back some 80 years, that church attendance in America has drifted below 50%. Less than half of people are now, in our country, going to church. Church attendance has just fallen. I think there's many reasons for that. But I think one of the main reasons is that people are encountering and fatiguing in a loveless culture of believers. People who say they are followers of Jesus Christ, but how they act, how they treat one another, loveless. I was with Pastor Joby. Pastor Joby and I did uh, dinner with some of the other pastors after the first night of our, of our men's conference. I said, Pastor Joby, I just got to tell you uh, what happened to me when I spoke at your church. I spoke at his church some years ago, and uh, man, I wasn't paying attention on my way to his church, and I, I, I drifted over, almost hit a person, deeply apologized. They, they honked at me and then pulled up next to me and spoke to me in sign language. <laughs> they then pulled in front of me, and uh, I'm behind them, and we're getting close to the church. They turn right, I turn right. They made a left, I made a left. I'm like, oh no. And wouldn't you know it, they pulled into the church parking lot where I was speaking. Now forgive me, but I was being a little snarky here. I parked right next to them. I said, how are you? Good to see you, brother. Got up on stage and, and preached. I just, want, I just want to let you know, if I was just there to visit... I wouldn't go to that church. Loveless. Loveless. This is really important as we ease our way into this text, and I want you to get this statement. Why is love so important? Because I think when it comes to gospel witness, gospel culture trumps gospel doctrine. When it comes to gospel witness, gospel culture trumps gospel doctrine. 
I love our church. I love the sending culture. I love the emphasis on making disciples. I love the idea of sharing our faith. I love the idea of sending people out. But people will not hear our message until they first feel our love. So this is an important passage of Scripture for us to allow the Holy Spirit to just poke around and mess with us on. We come now to our text. You need to understand that our text is uh, in a section of 1 Corinthians that begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, then our chapter, chapter 13, and then chapter 14. All of these are a section, these three chapters. Now I know many of you have uh, either had this read at your wedding or maybe you attended a wedding where 1 Corinthians 13 was read. In fact, that, if that was you, you've been to a wedding where this was read, or maybe it was read at your wedding. Would you just slip your hands uh, in the air? Yes, it is the classic love chapter, uh, and great. Amen, praise the Lord, keep reading it. But you need to understand, Paul ain't writing this for weddings. In fact, Paul is actually writing this to correct an egregious error that the Corinthians were making. This whole section is about spiritual gifts. He's talking about ways in which they're to use their spiritual gifts, uh, that, that, that God has gifted all of us. And he expects us to use our gifts for the building of the body and the glory of his name and fame. But the problem with the Corinthians is they were using their gifts not as a platform to serve others, but as a spotlight to shine on themselves. And Paul says, I need to tell you at the end of chapter 12, a more excellent way to use your gifts. He wants the fuel to our gifts to be love. In the fall of 2019, my wife and I, we were so excited, we, uh, uh, we led a trip. Uh, I, was, I was asked to take some people from the church we were serving. Uh, uh, they said, Brian, would you like to go on a cruise? Uh, and we stop at all these biblical places and take people on a trip. In fact, I'm doing it again this fall with some other pastor friends of mine, uh, and it was one of the best trips we've ever been on. We've been to biblical places. We went to biblical places like Ephesus and Corinth and Athens, and one of the places we went to was Jerusalem. I was so excited to go to Jerusalem. I'd never been to Jerusalem before, and specifically, I was excited to uh, walk that road Jesus walked on his way to the cross, the Via Della Rosa. Anybody here uh, ever been on that road that Jesus walked? Yeah, I see a few hands. Now, I was so excited, but if you've been on that road, man, I, I don't know if you felt this way. As soon as I got on that road that Jesus walked to the cross, I was immediately disgusted. Because what you experience is the road is just lined table to table, vendor to vendor with people selling their wares. And they're selling great stuff. They're, they're selling t-shirts with crosses, other things, wonderful things, but the spirit isn't for our own edification or for the glory of God. The Spirit is their own personal aggrandizement. I want to tell you that's exactly what's going on in the church of Corinth. They had taken a very good thing, but because they made the center of this good thing themselves, they ruined it. As a result, it was sheer chaos. We see so much of this in the church of Jesus Christ. And what is Paul doing in our text? He is correcting them. In fact, the first thing Paul wants to teach us, the first of three things is that love is greater than my actions. Love is greater than my actions. Verse 2, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. 
Let's talk about incredibly gifted people. One of the things Paul is showing us is that my gift, your gift, is never an ultimate veracity that shows whether or not you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Hell will be filled with many gifted people. How do I know this? Jesus said it himself. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, listen to what he says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not hear the gift, prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And they will declare to them, and, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, if you were to ask me kind of, what passage of Scripture haunts me the most? It's this one. If I read it correctly, hell will have many parking spaces with preachers. Hell will have many parking spaces with worship leaders. Hell will have many parking spaces with, with Sunday school Bible teachers and small group leaders. Gifted people who thought because they were doing things for God that that meant that they were a legitimate child of God. They were shocked to hear God say of them, depart from me, I never knew you. Oh, friends, this is a word for the body of Christ in general, but especially for us living in the Bible belt. I grew up in Atlanta. I know what this cultural Christianity thing is all about. Some of us think that just because we go to church, that makes us saved. Some of us think that just because we serve in a small group, that makes us saved. Some of us think that just because we're a part of a college ministry or, or leading a, a college ministry or youth group, that makes us saved. It is not what makes us saved. It's being filled with the Spirit, following Jesus Christ, and showing the lead-off batter of the fruit of the Spirit, done not through my own moral strivings, but living in submission to the Spirit of God that truly authenticates the veracity of my Christianity. This is a word we all need to hear. I get this. I understand this. We all know what it's like to do good things, but from the wrong motive. We all understand that. Some of you, you, man, you just actually think, um, if, if I do good things, um, maybe you do good things from the standpoint of people-pleasing. It's not me really doing good things, but I'm now doing it not, not for your well-being, but, but because I need you to like me. So I'm using this good thing to get you to like me so that not that I'll serve you, but that I'll feel better about myself. Others of us do good things maybe to put people in our debt. So if I do this for you, then I'm thinking you kind of owe me one, and it's like those old mafia movies Mafia movies, the Don says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this for you, but when I need a favor from you, you're going to give me a favor. Others of us, and this is most of us in this room, maybe we work jobs where our gifts are actually monetized. Amen. Praise the Lord. But we got to be careful with that. Because when you monetize gifts, it's easy to do them not from love. So how do I combat this? How do I ensure a culture in which I'm doing things for others because I love them? Jesus actually tells us in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Beware of doing your righteousness before others in order to be praised by them. He then talks about praying and giving and fasting. When he gets to giving, he says, When you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I find this to be incredibly helpful. 
and making sure that I'm doing good things from a place of Christ-exalting love. It's called the discipline of secrecy. As much as possible, I want to encourage us all to go down this road. I understand that there are many times in which we just absolutely can't. But what would it look like when you see someone in need to, I'm going to drop off the food, I'm not even going to attach my name to it, they, they won't even know it's me. What would it look like when you see someone who's in financial need to, to give money, maybe through a third party or to give money without your name on it? Is it wrong for them to know it came from you? No. But secrecy helps me to keep first things first. I was even reminded this last weekend, I had the actual absolute joy of getting on a plane and, and, and preaching the one-year anniversary of a church plant that I'm, I'm glad to serve up in the Chicago area. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, don't take an honorarium check. From time to time, he'll do that. And this helps me to make sure that I'm not ministering for money or for any other reason than the love of the people and the love of God. Secrecy is helpful. But Paul digs a little deeper. In verse 3, he says these words. He goes on to say, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What is Paul dealing with here? He moves from gifts to actually this idea of morality or moralism or good deeds. You know what Paul is helping us to understand here? He's helping us to see that good morals without love is self-righteous legalism. Good morals without love is self-righteous legalism. Of course, we understand that the poster children for this are the Pharisees. You talk about people who did good things. They tithed, they showed up at synagogue, they worshiped in the temple on high and holy days, and yet what does Jesus call them? Whitewashed graveyards full of dead men's bones. Incredibly moral people who at the same time were incredibly loveless. The best book I read last year was Philip Yancey, who happens to be one of my favorite Christian authors. He wrote, finally came out with his memoir. I've been waiting on this thing forever. It's a book simply called Where the Light Fell. In this book, he just talks about being raised by his, uh, his mother. His father died when he was a young age. Him and his brother are left. They're raised by his mom. And listen to how he describes his mom. Look at it with me on the screen. Unlike some women in our church, she has never worn a pair of slacks, nor does she wear nail polish or makeup, not even lipstick. She never fails to have lengthy personal devotions every morning, and she teaches the Bible for a living. What chance, speaking of him and his brother, do two adolescent kids stand against such an authority? Mother claims she hasn't sinned in 12 years, longer than I've been alive. See, at that point, this is just me. I'd be tempted to do something to make mother curse. <laughs> I'll bring that sin nature out in you. Sinlessness guarantees she will win every argument with us, her sons. At least in her mind, it also guarantees that she sees no need to apologize ever. Marshall, that's his brother, reveals something that makes my blood run cold. I hate her, he says, always have. Friends, this is what happens when you're more concerned with a person's behavior than with their being. Notice, not one time in this text does Paul call us to love people's behavior. We love people. And when I'm more concerned with their behavior, this is such a good word for me as a parent. I need this. This is so good for us as a body of Christ. I don't focus solely on behavior. 
In fact, when I focus solely on behavior and not the person, I'm guaranteed to lose the relationship. We love people. And agape love says, I am committed, absolutely, positively committed to you because in some way, shape, or form, that's what God in Christ does. Thanks, John, for the applause. <laughs> Secondly, love... Ultimately, Paul says, is greater than my actions. But secondly, Paul says, love is greater than my natural maturity. Love is greater than my natural maturity. Notice with me, if you will, what Paul does. Beginning in verse 4, he gives 15 descriptions or attributes of love. And then, notice what he does in verse 11. He uses an incredible analogy to communicate the idea of maturity. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You know what he's saying here? This kind of love ain't for kids. It's for grown-ups. And when we talk about this, we're not talking about chronology or a collection of birthdays. We're just talking about emotional and spiritual maturity. This is what he's getting at here. In fact, scholars tell us that the list that he gives, these 15 lists, they're not arbitrary. In fact, this list that he gives, the negative qualities, in some cases the reverse qualities, are actually deficiencies he's seen in the church at Corinth. So, for example, when he says love is patient, what he's really saying, these scholars say, is that he's noticed impatience in Corinth. He's noticed that they're envying, that they're boasting, that they're arrogant, that they are rude. Now, I want to just stop right here. I just, I just want to pick three of these. Let's take a little maturity test. First thing Paul says is that love is patient. Love is patient. One of the attributes of children of childish behavior, kids are incredibly impatient. Can I get an amen somewhere in the house? Children are incredibly impatient. I'll never forget, I had an important meeting some years ago when our kids were small. I, I don't know how it happened, but I, I ended up with one of our kids, real little at the time, it's just me and this person I'm having this meeting with, and, and, um, and, and, our, and our child is real little at the time, five or six years of age. Uh, about halfway through the meeting, my son goes, I'm ready to go now. <laughs> and you know what? It didn't throw off any of us. Now, we had to have a little bit of a conversation in the bathroom, he and I, and I tried to call him up to maturity. But the reason why I didn't throw us is that's what we expect of kids. We expect kids to be impatient. But the great tragedy is some of you are in relationship with a child. And when I say a child, I'm not talking about someone who shares your DNA and is younger than 18 years of age. You know what it's like to be with an incredibly childish, immature person who wants what they want on their timetable. Paul says, mature believers are not impatient, they are patient. Well, what does it mean to be patient? Here's a definition Andy Stanley gives on patience. He says this, patience is a decision to move at another person's pace instead of forcing them to move at yours. Patience is a decision to move at another person's pace instead of forcing them to move at yours. Now do you see the other's orientation of love? I'm more concerned about your growth and development than I am my timetable. That's what love looks like. Secondly, he says, love isn't rude. Love isn't rude. 
Rudeness has to do with, with saying something without taking into an account how the other person will receive it. And we see a lot of this. Rudeness under the guise of, I'm just keeping it real. Rudeness under the guise of, I'm just keeping it 100. Rudeness under the guise of, what you see is what you get. Paul says that's actually childish. It's childish. Again, this is what kids do. I'll never forget one time my wife came home from a, from a, um, a clothing store, I think it was, and I'm sitting in the house, and she comes in with a horrified look in her, in, her, um, in her eyes, and she's telling me about this lady that her and my son were in the store with. They saw this lady. This lady had a mustache. And what did my son do? Points at her and goes, hey, you got a mustache. It's incredibly rude. Did he take into an account how she would receive it? Did he take into account her, her feelings? No. Why didn't my wife say anything? Because she's mature. She understood how that would come across to her. I want to let you know that this kind of maturity isn't just, immaturity isn't just reserved for kids. I actually see it among adults. In fact, I'll just put myself out there. I always try to knock myself off a pedestal. I hope uh, this is a safe place and I won't receive any judgment. If you were to ask me the worst thing I've ever done in marriage, uh, it was a it was a bad rookie mistake within the first 90 days of marriage. I, I'm feeling some judgment already. You need, you need to understand, I'm not a night person. I start to wind down, oh, about 5.30 in the afternoon. Um, if I could get away with it, I'd be in the bed by about 7 or 7.30, but I can't get in the, uh, uh, away with it, so I'm in the bed by like 8.30 or 9 o'clock. How I roll, what does God do? As a means of my sanctification, uh, he gives me a wife who is a night owl. Now, again, we're about 90 days into marriage, uh, and my, my wife, who, um, who's an extrovert, I'm an introvert, she loves to talk, um, she would save up about 1,500 of her words um, uh, for when we got into the bed, and she's wanting to have these deep conversations. I'm feeling judgment already. So she's about 700 words in, and I just say to her, I'm fading fast, I said, honey, the bed is for two things and talking ain't one of them. I'm feeling judgment. It was an awful thing to say. Awful. 22 years later, I'm still apologizing for that bad boy. Well, come on, we all know what that's like. We all know what it is to just say things without any sense of account for how that person will receive it. I want to be careful here. Paul says the opposite of rudeness. He says in our text that love is kind. Kindness is not niceness. To be nice means I'm just, you know, down south, that's kind of our preeminent virtue. We're just so nice. No, kindness means that at times I say hard things, but I, but I package it in velvet. I say it in such a way that I want it received. Thirdly and finally, he says, love is not resentful. The Greek, for, the Greek word for uh, resentful means, it's the Greek word legizomai, from which we get the English word logic from. You know what resentful actually means in the original language? Scorekeeping. Love does not keep score. Bless those little children. If you're parents, what are we always uber aware of? Those little tax write-offs may be bad at math, but they're great at scorekeeping. That's why we are so 
uber conscious of making sure little Jimmy and his sister, exact amount of cookies. Because if it's not, they're going to let you know. It's a mark of immaturity. We keep score. And of course, that, that goes into someone who's chronologically much older. It's proof positive for this. Just go to Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. This younger brother goes off to the far country, makes a mess of his life, runs out of money, comes back home. The father throws a party, and his older brother throws a fit. What does he say? I've served you faithfully all these years. I didn't get a party. That's for keeping. Legizomai. We do this all the time. I invited them over to the house. They haven't invited me over. I'm done. I've taken initiative. They haven't taken initiative. I'm out. I called. It's been three days. They haven't called me back. I'm done. Scorekeeping. Childish. Immature. Now, I want to be careful. Let me say this. When we talk about phileo friendship, yeah, we don't keep score, but don't take a beating. We talk about friendship here. It's like playing tennis. All right? I call you, you call me back. That's what phileo is all about. That's not what agape is. Christ is like, oh, you, you want to you wanna keep score? You, you want to turn the scoreboard on? You're getting shut out right now. Instead, Paul says, love believes all things. I believe the best. I believe the best. That's what love does. Let's go home on this one. Paul is saying that love is greater than my actions. Love is greater than my natural maturity. Finally, quickly, Paul ends by saying that love is greater than my capacity. Spoiler alert. These 15 attributes, not one time does Paul say, do it. Not one time does Paul say, you just be patient. You just be kind. Stop being rude. Stop being arrogant. Why? Because you should be feeling overwhelmed by now, and you should have this sense, this is beyond me. I can't do this. And that's exactly the point. You and I do not have the capacity to do any of this stuff. In fact, that's why Tim Keller points out that in all this list of love, in the original language, what Paul is actually doing is he's personifying love. So that what Paul is alluding to is that love is not so much a what, it is a who. And that's why he ends by saying, or towards the end of our text, he says, verse 8, love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. You know what he's saying here? In heaven, there will be no spiritual gifts. We won't need prophecy in heaven because we will know it all. We won't need to speak in tongues in heaven. We, we won't need human leadership in heaven. Just like we don't need a flashlight during the day, we need it at night heaven the sun will always be shining verse 10 he says but when the perfect the perfect the perfect comes the partial will pass away the question is not what is the perfect the question is who is the perfect the perfect is Jesus Christ so all of these attributes all of these things are personified in Jesus don't you know friends Jesus is patience don't you understand you are here today because of the 
patience of Jesus Christ. Jesus exercised impatience towards me or towards you. We wouldn't have made it out the first day. Praise God for his patience. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't rude? He's not rude towards us. Instead, Jesus says, I am gentle and I am lowly. Don't you understand that Jesus is kind and on the cross, Jesus bears all things. This is who Jesus is. See, what we're saying, friends, is you want to do these things, you can't do them in your own strength. You only do them as you're in relationship with Jesus Christ and his spirit is working through you. That is why love in the Bible isn't postured as something we do, but as something we receive as we're submitted to the spirit of God. In essence, Paul is saying you cannot give what you have not first received. We've been on airplanes. We've heard the flight attendant do their safety protocols and checks. We've heard the part about the mask, haven't we? And the little disclaimer in which they say, hey, if you're on this, this airplane and you've got a, got a little one with you and all of a sudden we're dropping altitude real quick and you need your oxygen mask, hey, I know it's counterintuitive. Don't put the mask on yourself, excuse me, on the kid first. Put it on yourself first. Why? Because you're probably going to be disoriented. You're probably going to be out of it. And you can't give what you're not receiving. So if you're going to take care of that kid in a life-giving way, you've got to be receiving life yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Friends, your road to this kind of love, this kind of other-oriented love, regardless of how they respond to you, you don't have the strength. You can't do this. Praise God, we serve a God who John says doesn't just do love, but John says God is love. It's who he is. So if you're not showing this kind of love, it can only mean one thing. You're not walking in right relationship with him. So that's the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. On the cross, he offers his love. He's died for us. He gives us his spirit who is inside of us. And all it demands, all it necessitates is, God, I yield to you. I don't have the capacity to love my spouse the way you call me to. I don't have the capacity to walk into high school tomorrow and, and, and love my classmates the way you call me to. God, I for sure don't have the capacity to love my enemies the way you call me to. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who gives me everything that I need. So, God, as we end, we are grateful. Yes, Lord God, we are overwhelmed by your word. We say we can't, we can't, we can't in our own strength. But Jesus, you say that we can do all things through you who strengthens us. Lord, I pray that the Summit Church, as great as our church is, we'd never get grown, we'd never get so sophisticated in our faith that we neglect the primacy of love kind of love that stretches out across economic lines, stretches out across ethnic lines, that stretches out across zip codes, kind of love that goes into the world. Do it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.